you have a copy of God's Word, please turn in it to 1 Peter chapter 1. Toward the end of your New Testaments, the epistle of 1 Peter chapter 1. We've been in a regular series of sermons in the book of 1 Peter. We come this morning to chapter 1, verse 22, and I'd like us to read through chapter 2 and verse 3. So 1 Peter 1, verse 22, through chapter 2 and verse 3. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So are therefore put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I want you to imagine that you live in the first century, and you are tasked with writing a letter to a large group of Christians living as exiles all across Asia Minor. These Christians are experiencing a great degree of suffering and hardship. Some of them are perhaps prone to doubt their faith, prone to doubt the goodness of God. They feel displaced and ostracized in the surrounding culture. Some of them have been cruelly slandered and maligned by those in the society who oppose them. Most of them do not come from Christian backgrounds, and so they have little family support. Some of the men and women in the churches are married to spouses who aren't Christians. They have remaining sin struggles, even as they struggle with various forms of suffering and hardship that confront them. Your task to write this letter to this church, to speak into these issues. Uh, What would be uh, the matters, the concerns that you would wish to convey to them? What duties would you bring to their mind? What responsibilities would you remind them of? What admonishments and exhortations would you want to repeat and emphasize as you write to them? Uh, You might encourage them, in light of the fact that they live as exiles in the context of a hostile surrounding culture, you might encourage them to try to transform the culture around them perhaps recommending that they give themselves to some form of social or political activism to try to affect change in the surrounding culture. You might try to take them through a program of evangelism training so that they could be more effective in their witness to their neighbors. You might teach them about the importance of prayer, encouraging them to pray at all times without ceasing. There would be merit in all of these things, certainly efforts at influencing the culture, Certainly evangelism and prayer are all important things, but none of these matters is among the themes that Peter chooses to emphasize in this letter. This morning I'd like to talk about one of the things Peter does choose to emphasize and repeat in the book of 1 Peter. Now in the verses I've had you turn to, chapter 1 verse 22 through chapter 2 verse 3, 
there are two main imperatives in these seven verses, two main things Peter is calling these Christians to do, and they are two of the most fundamental things all Christians are called to. The first is found in the second, excuse me, the first is found in verse 22, where Peter writes, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The second is found in chapter 2, verse 2, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now what I'd like to do is preach through these seven verses twice. So this week and then next week we'll return to these seven verses and we'll take these two imperatives as the content, as the subject for both sermons. So today I'd like to look at that imperative in the second half of verse 22 where Peter says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now here these Christians in exile, with all that is negative and discouraging about their situation, and one of the things Peter urges them to do, one of the things Peter will return to again and again is this admonition to love one another. Uh, Peter raises the issue of love, specifically love among Christians within the community of faith, no less than five times in this book. Actually, in every chapter in 1 Peter, there is a command, there is an admonition, an exhortation that we would love one another. You can't turn to a chapter in 1 Peter and not get this exhortation from Peter. So in 1 Peter 1.22, as we just read, he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. In chapter 2, verse 17, Peter simply says, love the brotherhood. In 1 Peter 3, verse 8, he says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love. 1 Peter 4, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. And then at the end of the book in 1 Peter 5, verse 14, greet one another with the kiss of love. Now, why is it significant to note that this admonition from Peter is repeated so often in this letter? What should we see in this repetition? And more than that, what do we make of the many repeated admonitions to love, not only in 1 Peter, but in the entire New Testament? So you read the Gospels, hear the words of Jesus, you read the epistles of Paul all across the New Testament again and again and again and again, we are called in the church as believers to love one another. Why are there so many exhortations in the New Testament and in the book of 1 Peter to love one another? Well, there are at least three things we should appreciate by the repetition of this command, this call that we love one another. First of all, we should recognize that this call to love in the community of faith among believers is at the core of what Jesus expects of His disciples. It's at the core of the Christian life. It's at the core of the will of God. Love for our Christian brothers and sisters is part of what defines Christian discipleship, and thus it's repeated again and again and again and again. A second reason we have the repetition of this command to love so often in the New Testament and in 1 Peter is simply because it's hard to love one another. It's hard to love one another, to persevere and to endure in love for one another. It's easy to fail in love. And so we constantly need to be reminded and encouraged and exhorted to love because it's a hard thing to do. 
the priority of love needs to be brought to our minds again and again and again. And the third and final reason this subject is so important and repeated so often by Jesus and His apostles, and Peter in particular, is because a failure to love among God's people is profoundly costly. It's costly to the health of the church. Churches most often divide not because of doctrinal error, but because of a failure to love. And the failure to love is not only costly to local churches and to brothers and sisters in Christ, it is costly to our witness. Jesus said in the upper room to His disciples, by this, all men will know that you love Me, that you are My disciples, that you love one another. And it is one of the greatest blights on Christian witness and the Christian testimony and the Christian gospel that Christians so often fail in the area of love. For all these reasons, I think, the Holy Spirit inspired men to again and again repeat this exhortation and to bring to the minds of God's people this priority of love for one another among the community of faith. And Peter is no exception. In every chapter in this book, he's going to bring this to the minds of these hearers, that they love one another in the body of Christ. So I'd like to open up this text in 1 Peter 1, verse 22 through chapter 2, verse 3, under three main headings to help us better understand this call to brotherly love, okay? We'll consider first the source of brotherly love, secondly the call to brotherly love, and that's where we'll spend most of our time, and then thirdly and finally the threats to brotherly love, the sources, the call the threats. Consider with me first the source of brotherly love. Look with me again, if you would, at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. For, and then Peter quotes Isaiah 40, all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. All right, in verse 22 and 23, there is this main imperative, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's the main call. That's the imperative. That's what we'll be looking at this morning. But then you have these two what are called participles that are kind of the bread of the sandwich of that imperative. They on either side of that imperative, and they modify that main imperative that we love one another. The first participle is in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. That's the first. And then the second is in verse 23. Since you have been born again, or having been born again. Both of these participles are what we would call causal meaning they together form the cause of our love. They are what brings love into existence, which is why I've named this first heading the source of brotherly love. So looking at that first phrase in verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. So you have that phrase, having purified. That's in the perfect tense, meaning it's a past action with ongoing consequences or results in the present. Uh, Peter is telling these Christians they have purified or cleansed their souls at a point in the past. Uh, the Greek word here for purified can refer to a sort of ceremonial washing they have experienced 
in the past, at a definite point in time, a sort of washing, a regeneration, a cleansing of soul. Now, how is it that they came to experience this purification? He says, by your obedience to the truth. So, we've been purified how? By our obedience to the truth. Now, how do we interpret that phrase? I believe what is in view, that phrase, obedience to the truth, is our response to the gospel. Uh, This verse is not saying we become pure through our ongoing obedience to God's law. Rather, we are purified through our obedience to the truth, namely faith in the gospel. The gospel comes with a call. It comes with a summons, and we respond by heeding the call, obeying the summons, and placing our faith and hope in God. Now, originally, I was going to give a multitude of reasons why I arrive at that particular understanding of that phrase there, but for the sake of time, I'm just not going to do it. But I'll just simply say, um, the word gospel in the New Testament is often simply designated as the truth. Uh, so, So Paul encourages the Ephesians to hope in the truth, the gospel of your salvation. And what's more than that, the Bible frequently describes our response to the gospel as obedience. So Paul in Romans chapter 1, for example, in verse 5, he speaks of the obedience of faith. Uh, or in 1 Thessalonians 1.8, he commends the church in Thessalonica because they obeyed the gospel. Peter will use this phrase, speaking of those in 1 Peter 4.17 who do not obey the gospel. The Lord Jesus Himself frequently pictures our faith and repentance as, as the response of obedience to the gospel message. And so for these reasons, I think it's appropriate to read this statement, obedience to the truth, to connote faith in the gospel, our response to the gospel message. The essential thing Peter intends to convey is that the truth of the gospel came to you, you obeyed it through faith, and thus you were purified, you were cleansed, you were washed. What's more important is the purpose he states for the purification, this cleansing that's taken place in our hearts. Peter says you were purified, you were cleansed, you were washed for or unto this purpose, brotherly love. So why did the purification take place? Why was I washed? Why was I cleansed? And what was the result? The result was brotherly love. This forms part of the purpose for why God saves us. Now to the second participle, which helps us in understanding the source of brotherly love, found in verse 23. We're told, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since or because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. Very plainly, the new birth is in view. Peter has spoken to them already about their new birth to a living hope. He has blessed God for their new birth. Now he's saying, okay, since you have been born again, it's time to get busy loving one another because this is what new birth is meant to produce. It's meant to bring about, to bring to life, love for brother, love for sister in the heart of the believer. In other words, new birth leads to love of brother. And this new birth is said to be brought about not through perishable seed, that is not through like natural human birth, okay, but through imperishable seed, through the living and abiding 
word. And then he quotes from Isaiah verse 40, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. That's like the perishable seed of man. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord, the imperishable seed, the living and abiding word remains forever. He's contrasting these two births, your natural birth and then your new birth. And he's trying to say your new birth is so much more significant, so much more powerful, based on better promises, better power than your first birth. So this is the idea, I think. You must love one another earnestly because you were born again. Born again how? Not through human seed, human birth, the will of man, which is so frail and so fleeting and passing away. But you were born again through imperishable seed, through the word of the Lord, which remains forever. And then he says, this word is the good news that was preached to you. In other words, the good news came, the gospel came, the word of the Lord came, and you believed it, and you were born again. So this is the flow. The word of the Lord comes It brings about new birth, and new birth brings about brotherly love. That's the logic of Peter's thinking in these verses. The new birth is understood to be the cause or the source of the love that exists and should abound between Christians. So he's going to call us to love one another, but he wants us to understand first this love is not optional for the Christian. Rather, it is essential. It's part of the reality that's brought about by the new birth. It's at the heart of what it means to be a born-again Christian. Moreover, this love is not understood to be natural. It didn't come about by your first birth, by your human nature. It is the fruit of supernatural soul purification of new birth, of the living and eternal Word of God, the good news taking root in your heart and blossoming into the fruit of love for others. Now, this has huge implications for our Christian lives. I'm just going to mention two, okay? First of all, we should understand from this passage that one of the clearest evidences of new birth is a new innate love for your fellow Christians. One of the clearest evidences of new birth is brotherly love, sisterly love, love for your fellow Christians in the body of Christ, which means negatively, if you don't love other Christians, you have not been born again. If you don't love your brother, your sister in Christ, you have not been born again. Love is seen to be the the birthmark of the Christian, the clearest evidence that he or she has been born again by the Spirit of God. Now, this is the Apostle Peter writing. Peter, of course, was very close friends with the Apostle John. Peter and John together would have sat at the Lord's feet. They would have ministered together for those years as Jesus' disciples. And Peter and John both were part of that especially intimate group that was brought into closer fellowship with Jesus during his earthly ministry. Uh, And then after the resurrection, uh, Peter and John did a great deal of ministry together in those early days of the church's existence. They were close, warm, personal friends. And so it's not surprising, as they both were taught by Jesus and as they both spent so much time together, there's a great deal of overlap in the writings of Peter and John, particularly 1 Peter and 1 John. And, And both 
New Testament writers, both apostles, emphasize the priority of love and the importance of love for the Christian, for the church. And John, in 1 John, will will press these themes a little bit further and um, speak of these truths in an even more striking way than Peter does. So in 1 John 2 verse 9, we read this, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. 1 John 3 verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life. You want to know whether or not you've passed out of death into life? We know we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. First John 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. It is God is love, and those who are born of God will possess something of the traits of God, the characteristics and qualities of God. And then 1 John 5 verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Think about the implications of that statement. Everyone who loves God loves everyone who has been born of Him. That, that woman at the school or the co-op And she just gets under your skin, but she's a Christian. She belongs to the Lord. You're to love her. That that Christian man whose life and position and family and job you so envy, the Bible calls you to love him. That other Christian in the church that you would really just kind of try to avoid when you're at church. You just disagree on something or you can't see eye to eye and he or she just gets under your skin and so... The Bible says you're to love him. The Christian that's going to vote differently from you on November 3rd, whoever has been born of God, we are called by this passage to love. And Peter is in essence saying a similar thing, that the new birth, all those who have been born of God are to love one another earnestly. Love one another, Peter says, because you've been born again. Love for the Lord's people is like the DNA of the Christian. It's part of the genetic code of the child of God. A second implication, though, from these verses. We should recognize if we have, in fact, been purified, been cleansed, been converted, been regenerated, we have been purified unto brotherly love for the purpose of brotherly love, and therefore Christians should understand the matter of love within the church to be one of the most important priorities of their lives. One of the reasons, Christian, you have been born again is so that you would love other Christians. This is part of the purpose, this is part of why God saved you, that you would love your brothers and sisters in the church. If that is one of the basic purposes of our lives and of our callings as Christians, How much of our attention should this occupy? How much of our prayers, how much of our energy, how much of our efforts at sanctification would we want to grow in brotherly love when we recognize, when we appreciate, like this is the big deal. 
This is part of why I've been converted. This is part of why I've been born again. This is part of why God purified me and sanctified me and set me apart. I was purified unto for the purpose of brotherly love. So what is the source of brotherly love? It is simply the new birth. Now consider with me secondly the call to brotherly love. The call to brotherly love. Peter says, verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This is the command, this is the call to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, we're going to return to the subject of brotherly love a number of times because it comes up in every chapter in 1 Peter. So I'm not going to say everything now that can be said about the subject of brotherly love, but the main thing I want to do in this message is to help us understand what does Peter want of us? What is he calling us to when he says we're to love one another earnestly? He doesn't define love, but I want us to appreciate and understand something of what that word means. What's the content of that word? Because clearly it entails upon me various behaviors and thoughts and actions and habits If I'm going to love my brothers and sisters earnestly as the Holy Spirit of God calls me to through the Apostle Peter, I've got to know what does that mean? What does that entail? What does it look like to love one another earnestly? Now, there are all sorts of mistaken notions about what love is in our culture today. The reality is most people who say the words, I love you, they're not within a thousand leagues of the Bible's understanding of what that word love truly means. And very sadly, in the church, I think there are a lot of mistaken notions of what biblical love among brothers and sisters really is and what it's supposed to look like. So what is love according to the Bible? Here's one way to describe it. Love involves an affection of the heart, a commitment of the will, and a sacrifice of the life. Love involves an affection of the heart, a commitment of the will, and a sacrifice of the life. Let's look at those three things. First of all, love is an affection of the heart. Now, make no mistake, love, according to the Bible, involves feelings, emotions, affections, If you survey the biblical material on brotherly love, Christian love, love among brothers and sisters in the church, you simply cannot come up with a definition that reduces love merely to action or to the keeping of commitments. Love involves an affection of the heart. Think first of how the Bible characterizes and describes our love for God. What do you think the Lord means when He tells us we're to love Him with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. He means that this love is comprehensive. It it consumes the whole man. It requires the whole man to be engaged. It cannot be reduced to actions and obedience only. It involves the heart and the soul as well as the strength and the mind. Love involves the whole person which includes the affections. Love involves wanting, longing, enjoying, having, experiencing. It is earnest and affectionate desire for the other. And this is what God expects in our love 
for Him. There's an element of affection. Any notion of the love of God that is reduced to just obeying God is a deficient view of our love for God. He wants the affections of our hearts to be engaged in our love for Him. Consider what Jesus said in the upper room in John 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Now, what do you think Jesus is saying there? He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. How has the Father loved the Son? He delights in the Son. He has an affectionate disposition toward the Son. There's pleasure and joy and delight in the communion between the Father and the Son. And Jesus says, in this way, I love you. Christian, be assured, Jesus' love for you is not only expressed in terms of commitments. It's wonderfully expressed in commitments. But within the heart of Jesus is an affectionate disposition towards you, a loving, a caring, an earnest desire, an affectionate engagement of the heart in the way He thinks about you. That's how He loves us, and we're, we're told to abide in that love. Now, now, you say, well, doesn't Jesus also say there, if you love me, keep my commandments? So, action, commitment? Yes, it does say that. But it does not say, love for me is keeping commandments. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying, he's saying the keeping of the commandments is the proper expression of love. Uh, uh, love can't truly be residing in the heart if it doesn't follow through and produce the keeping of commandments. But he does not say the essence of love is the keeping of commandments. He says, rather, if you love me, your love will come to expression in obedience, in commitments, in action. But we shouldn't confuse what the essence of love is with the expression of love. Now, why would we expect, if this is the way love for God and love for Christ and love between the members of the Trinity, why would we expect love between brothers to be any different in its character? Indeed, when we look to the Bible and listen to the way it describes love, that is to abound between brothers and sisters, we see it takes on an affectionate character. Romans 12, verse 9, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Love between brothers and sisters is meant to be affectionate in nature. The Bible's view of love will not allow us to limit love to action or commitment. It involves an affection of the heart. Now, I don't know what your perspective is or what your experience is, but lots of Christians will talk about love in this way as though love is only or primarily action, doing, sacrificing, committing. I just ask you to consider how that would play in the context of a marriage. So you could imagine a husband and a wife, and the husband takes this, this posture, this perspective, love is doing, love is action. And so I, I do my job with respect to my wife. I get up early, I go to work, I try to provide for the family, I help the kids with their homework, I help them with bath time and bedtime, I mow the lawn, I keep my commitments, I do my job, I'm, I'm acting, I'm doing, I'm committing. And this goes on for years and years and years, and, and the wife is just, just wilting under this husband who's fixated on all the doing and acting and all of that. And, and she, she says to her husband, honey, I, I'm struggling to know that you really love me. Now imagine that husband saying to her, well, 
I'm doing my job. I mean, I'm out here doing, keeping my responsibilities, doing the things I'm supposed to do. How could you say, I don't love you? Of course, that's not what she's talking about, right? It's like, I don't feel you have affection for me. I want so much more than just the doing, more than just the commitments, more than just the acting. I want your heart. Can I trust, can I know that, that this action is coming out of an affectionate disposition toward me? That is at the heart of what love is an affectionate engagement of the heart. Similarly, what would that attitude look like in the church? Well, I'm part of the church. I'm a Christian. I'm a member here. Yeah, I can get up early. I can come. I can do stuff. I can serve. I'll commit. I'll perform my religious duties, and I'll serve the body here. But, but if the notion of service is not tethered to an affectionate heart, an affectionate disposition, that kind of attitude is worthless. Friends, we can serve and do good things for people we don't love at all. The Bible will not allow the posture of, look, I can't stand Brother Joe. He drives me crazy. But yeah, he's in the hospital, so yeah, we'll make a meal for him because I got to love him after all. That's a hollow notion of love, and it's disallowed by the Bible. We're to love one another earnestly, with brotherly affection. I'm to be affectionately engaged for Joe, and if those affections for Joe aren't there, I want to pray that those affections will come to light because I don't want to just do things for people and commit to the church and do my job. I want to be affectionately motivated for these people because at the heart of it, love is an affection of the heart. To reduce love to action only, to sacrifice only, to commitment only is a deficient view of love. Love involves the affectionate engagement of the heart, which is why I think Peter twice urges the saints in Asia Minor to love one another earnestly. Earnestly. Is your love for your brothers and sisters earnest, ardent, zealous, do you love your brothers and sisters with affectionate devotion? And it's why I think our text in verse 22 tells us we're to love one another from the heart, from the control center of one's being, to love others with the affections. Brothers and sisters, in the church, we should be earnest and affectionate in our love for one another. Now, I'm not assigning, by the way, any sort of outward expression of those affections. Some of us are huggers, and we love to embrace our brothers and sisters in the church and draw them close as an expression of our affection, and then there are others of us who would rather have a little bit of distance, and if you hug them, they're kind of like a block of ice, right? You don't have to be a hugger to do this. I had two pastors in the church I grew up in. One, one exuded affection in his disposition, and he loved to give you a warm embrace, and he'd put his hand on the back of your neck, and he'd pull you close. And the other pastor was British, and that didn't translate for him. He was a kind of stolid English gentleman, and um, he learned to hug, but it didn't come naturally to him. I was never in doubt of his affection for me. I mean, however this works for you, seek to communicate to your brothers and sisters in the church, I have affection for you. doesn't have to look like a warm hug. It might be a a warm email. It might be a conversation in the pew. It might be a letter. It might be some words attached to an act of kindness. 
But brothers and sisters, we shouldn't be slow to assure one another of our affection for one another. Affection that arises from the heart. Hopefully you parents know this, you shouldn't be slow to assure your children of your affection. Why? Because, because when children grow up in the context of an affectionate atmosphere, they grow up strong, they grow up free, they grow up feeling safe, and it nurtures intimacy and love between parent and child, similarly in all our relationships. We should all walk and operate with the confidence that I have the affection of my brothers and sisters in the life of this church. And we should not be slow to bring that assurance to one another. I love you from my heart. I want you to know earnestly. I want your good. I desire your well-being. I love you from the heart. Love is certainly more than an affection of the heart, but biblical love is never less. Secondly, love is a commitment of the will. Love is an affection of the heart. Secondly, love is a commitment of the will. Love involves commitment. Love involves deliberate choices. Love involves duty, obligation, dedication, resolution, keeping of covenant, performing what has been promised. These words, duty, obligation, resolution, these words are not alien to the Bible's view of love. They also form something of the heart of true biblical love. Love without commitment is nothing. It's just goo. It's just, it's just nothing at all. Love commits itself to certain things. Love as a commitment of the will says yes to certain things and says no to other things. Again, you might think of a marriage and a love between a husband and a wife. Whenever I perform a wedding ceremony, I'll say, when we get to the covenant, the time for the vows, I'll say something like, we have come to the heart of the marriage. The exchanging of promises, the exchanging of covenant commitments, stating these commitments to one another, and more than that, from the heart, intending with God's help to keep them, is at the heart of the covenant relationship between a husband and a wife. And so when a husband and a wife or a man and a woman enter into that covenant together, they're committing to do certain things for one another, committed to taking certain postures toward one another, committing to a covenant together. And it is one of the blights on this society that marital love is held so cheaply in our day. Most often when a man and a woman come to the altar to make a covenant with one another, what they, what they say is the wonderful covenant commitments that we all think of. What they often mean is, I am in this as long as I presently enjoy you. And as soon as that goes away, I'm gone. I mean, that seems to be the nature of love in our day, if you see how readily couples split from one another when they divorce from one another. Now, now I hope if we have a sanctified and godly view of biblical love, we'll appreciate that love is so much more than present affection or present feeling. It's not less than affection, but it's more than that, and it involves a commitment of the will, a commitment to do certain things, to be certain things, to say yes to certain things, to say no to certain things. And, and it is appropriate in marriage that when the embers of affection are burning low for commitment, duty, obligation, performing what has been sworn, 
comes in like fuel on the fire. It's like a, a fail-safe. It's like a safety net. I don't presently feel like in my affections the things I want to feel and should feel for this woman, but that doesn't mean I just bow out. When the affections run low, the commitment of the will steps in. So I'm going to keep what I vowed. I'm going to keep my covenant. I'm going to pray, God, bring the affections back. But in the meantime, I will, I will be committed because that is part of the nature of what love is. Well, what about in the church? Because Peter's not talking about marriage. He's talking about church relationships. Here's Bob and here's Bill. They're both Christians, and they want to heed Peter's call to love one another earnestly. What does that mean in terms of their commitments to one another? Well, it means that Bob is going to take this posture toward Bill, that, Bill, I am committed to your well-being I am committed, passionately committed, devotedly committed to your sanctification. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to help you to heaven. If I see you straying into sin, falling away, I'm going to call you back. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to speak to you. I'm going to admonish you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to commit myself to certain things in my relationship to you, Bill. And Bill takes the same posture toward Bob. One of the reasons in this church we have a church covenant is because the Bible repeatedly calls us in the church to love one another, and we know that biblical love involves a commitment of the will. The New Testament enumerates many commitments we're to have toward one another that give shape to our love for one another. And so we say things like this, we will walk together in love praying for one another, encouraging each other in our Christian walk, carefully watching over each other, and faithfully warning, exhorting, and admonishing one another as occasion may require. You see a sheep straying from the fold, what does love do? Love keeps its commitment. I'm going to go after the sheep that's wandering, the sheep that's straying away. It, it, it is it is a sham love that says, I don't, I don't confront the sins in my brothers and sisters. I, I'm not going to really have that conversation because it's uncomfortable and I really don't feel that he or she will like me anymore. No, love commits itself to better things. When we see the one who's backsliding, when we see the one who's in sin, we go to them and we seek to win them and we seek to draw them back and to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. That is a commitment of the will and it is an expression of true biblical love. We say we will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I'm committing myself that unity will abide and abound in the context of this fellowship of God's people. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but will uphold the public worship of God and the ordinances of His church. Have you ever thought of your church attendance and your participation in the corporate gatherings as a function of love? It's a commitment we make with one another. We're going to covenant. We're going to gather. We're going to be together. And we're going to exhort and encourage one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs because we need one another. And this is part of what we've committed. This is part of what love commits to do. Love in community commits itself to things, to actions, to attitudes, to behaviors. Love involves a commitment of the will. You know that wonderful passage in 1 Corinthians 13, it's read often at weddings, 
Verse 7 says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, how do you realize that standard of love? How do you realize that ideal of love? That kind of love will involve a commitment of the will. How does love bear all things? How can we be long-suffering with one another, forbear with one another, unless we're committed to one another? I don't just leave at the first offense. I don't just back out of the relationship when things aren't going my way. Love bears all things. The type of love that endures all things, that perseveres through hardship, that is a love that is grounded in a commitment of the will, that we will love one another and stay committed to one another. This cannot be achieved apart from a commitment of the will. So love is an affection of the heart. It's a commitment of the will. Thirdly, love is a sacrifice of the life. It's an affection of the heart. I got to have feelings for my brothers and sisters. It's a commitment of the will. I will do certain things, perform certain duties and obligations to one another. It is a sacrifice of the life. We see this modeled for us in God's relationship with us. In 1 John 4, verse 9, we read, in this the love of God was made manifest. Like, this is how we know God is loving. That God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Romans 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates His love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was a sacrifice of the life. God's love was demonstrated in sacrifice. And so Peter would have remembered being there in the upper room with Jesus. And Jesus telling him that the character of love that he had for his disciples was also to characterize the love that the Lord's disciples had for one another. He would remember the Lord saying, greater love has no one than this, than that a man lay down his life for his friends. What is the ultimate expression of love between brothers and sisters? It is a sacrifice of the life. And Jesus gives them this commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. As I have sacrificed, as I have laid down my life, you are to love one another. We see this also with respect to love and marriage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for her. Biblical love involves a sacrifice of the life. So, so that's what love is. And so now Peter's saying to us in 1 Peter 1 verse 22, you Christians are to love one another like in the church, which means we in our love for one another should sacrifice our lives for one another. The sacrifice of the life is meant to characterize our relationships in the church. I lay down my life for you and you lay down your life for me. And so we should ask ourselves, am I willing to sacrifice my time for these brothers and sisters? It's a sacrifice of the life. That's part of the nature of what love is. Here's a brother or sister in need. They need your time. Will you sacrifice your time for your brothers and sisters? Will you sacrifice your money and your resources for your brothers and sisters? Look, look, brother, we're doing fine. The Lord has blessed us. We, we want you to have this money. You need it more than we do. Love is a sacrifice of the life, a sacrifice of resources, a sacrifice of what God has given to us. 
Will we in our church life, as those called to love one another and sacrifice for one another, are we prepared to sacrifice our preferences for one another as an expression of our love? I I don't know that any Christian in any church would say everything in the church is exactly to my liking. But if, if the nature of our love for one another is to be characterized by this kind of sacrifice, the kind of sacrifice that God made for us in sending His own Son to die on the cross for us, surely we can sacrifice some of our preferences. Yeah, the children's program could be run a different way. The music could be a little bit different. The schedule could be arranged differently. This is not exactly to my liking or to my preferences, but I love these men and women. I love my fellow Christians. I can sacrifice my preferences because love at the heart of it is a sacrifice of the life. So brotherly love, Christian love, love among God's people involves an affection of the heart, a commitment of the will, and a sacrifice of the life. And this love, Peter says, we're to pursue earnestly. This is the call. Finally and briefly, I'm just about out of time, we have the threats to brotherly love, and I'm, I'm not really going to be able to open this third point up. I'd be working with chapter 2, verse 1. Peter has told these Christians there to love one another earnestly. This means they have to be vigilant against certain threats. They have to watch against certain threats. So he says, verse 1, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. If I were to meet with a young man who wants to marry a young woman and we're doing some kind of counseling together and he wants some discipling, I would encourage him that he needs to be prepared thoughtfully to love his bride-to-be, but I would also tell him that loving his wife involves saying no to certain things and putting to death certain sins. And so I would tell that young man, you need to mortify selfishness, you need to mortify impatience, you need to mortify anger and bitterness, you need to mortify unforgiveness. Why? Because these things will be the enemy of your love for your wife. They will be threats to your love for your wife. And so Peter, in similar fashion, is saying to these Christians, you must love one another earnestly, and that means be watchful against malice, against deceit. Rather, let each one speak the truth with his neighbor. Put away hypocrisy. Put away all envy and all slander. These things are the enemies, the threats of our love for one another. There are certain things in the life of the church body that are like termites to wood. You have a house that looks on the outside like it's stable, and you look underneath and you see the termites have done their work. They've eaten away at the foundation, and this isn't a stable house at all. So are these things that Peter lists here. How slander is like a termite in the church, eating away at the love and unity that abides. How envy and strife and malice are like termites. You go into some churches, and, and you, you can detect, you walk in, there might be an outward facade of cheerfulness, sort of chipper, happy to see you kind of stuff. But as you penetrate into the life of that church and you get to know the members of the church and you get to talking to the pastors and you get to talking to this one and that one, you slowly begin to realize the termites have been doing their work. And in some cases, they've been doing it for decades. 
And you have many churches across America of people who gather together, but there is no real love that exists between those people. You have people in those churches who don't talk to each other and haven't talked to each other in 10 years. You have people who have nursed bitterness and grudges. You have people who are gossiping about one another. Whatever might be true about the Sunday event, however pleasant it might be, no real love exists there. And in those churches, it is always the case. They were not vigilant against these types of things. They did not understand or appreciate the way gossip eats away at the health and unity of a church. They didn't understand the way that slander and sins of the tongue can be like termites eating away at the foundation of the church's love and unity. So brothers and sisters, in our efforts to love one another earnestly as brothers and sisters in Christ, we must be vigilant against these threats. We must recognize there are things that can destroy the love that we have sought to so carefully nurture and cultivate in the context of this church family. And so we must be committed to bring the affection of the heart, the commitment of the will, the sacrifice of the life to this body, but we must also be on guard against these things that will eat away at and erode our love for one another. Let me conclude with this. Churches often come together because of doctrine, an agreement about what's true, according to the Bible. Churches often come together um, with a shared vision of what the church is to be like, and that brings them together. Churches often come together because of a shared passion for the Great Commission and for the mission of the church. The churches stay together because of love. This is just me opening up my heart to you, okay? As I think about the next three years, five years, ten years, if the Lord tarries of this church's life and existence, if we are to fail and if we are to divide and if we are to decline and diminish in the days ahead, I don't think it will be Uh, through disagreement about the truth. I could be wrong. We have to always be vigilant against false teaching. But I do think the greater threat is that we would fail in our love for one another. Churches so often divide, they usually divide, they usually split because love has failed. Because love is no longer there in the way that it was at some point in time. Love is like the glue that keeps the church together. It's like the mortar between the bricks that keeps the building standing. And where there is a failure of love, churches will divide. Churches will fail. Churches will split. It's not unlike a marriage. Couples come together for all kinds of reasons. They come together because they enjoy one another. They come together because they're excited about marital intimacy. They come together for all kinds of reasons. Couples stay together because they love one another. And so it is with churches. We will endure, we will abide, we will persevere, God helping us if we continually nurture and cultivate and steward our love for one another and are on guard against the threats to our love for one another. The test of this church's longevity will most likely be in the area of love. It's not because doctrine's unimportant. I'm not trying to diminish the importance of like-mindedness in the truth at all. What I'm simply saying is it's a whole lot easier to agree to a confession of faith together than it is to stay committed to loving one another. 
May, may God help us to take these words from Peter to heart. May we be committed to earnestly loving one another. May we be quick to assure one another of our affection for one another, our commitments to one another, and may we be eager to sacrifice our lives for one another. And in that effort, let us be encouraged and stimulated by this great motivation that in so doing, we are modeling something, conveying something of the love of our Savior for us. It was said of Jesus, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. As we persevere in our love for one another, we're modeling the Savior's love for us. We're showing something of the gospel in the way we love one another. As we sacrifice for each other, we are manifesting the Lord's sacrifice for us. And let that motive drive us and stimulate us as we continue to persevere in our love for one another. Let's pray together. Our Father, we understand this call to love one another earnestly, to be at the core of your will for your church. So often, this was on the lips of the Lord Jesus as he spoke to his disciples. He spoke to them so often of the priority of love. May we, as eager disciples and followers of the Lord Jesus, be committed to this beautiful and wonderful vision for what love between brothers and sisters ought to be like. We pray that you would increasingly give to our church family real and true-hearted affection for one another, that we, would, that we would allow our hearts to run out to one another, our emotions to be moved and affected by one another. May we be eager to convey our affection to one another. May you work in us the grace of commitment and devotion in serving one another. May you teach us what it really means to sacrifice our lives to lay down our lives in service to one another. Father, we pray that we would give ourselves to all that your word says love is, that we would give ourselves to one another in the way that the Lord Jesus gave himself for us, and that this beautiful picture of love between brothers and sisters, this beautiful reality would be realized increasingly and would burn brightly in the context of our church, and would you be pleased to continually pour the fuel of the gospel and the grace of God and the love of God upon our love for one another, that the fire might burn brightly throughout the days and the generations of this church. Cause us to endure. May we never leave our first love. Keep us in the love of God. Keep us in the love of one another, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.